0: You're listening to online media from Glendale Christian Church. For more information, visit us at GlendaleCC.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at GlendaleCCKY. Man, it is great to see all of you here today. It is time for Kids Church, and so fifth grade and under, you guys are dismissed. i tell you this, I love having our kids in here, but this is my least favorite part of Sunday morning is watching all of them leave because it's like all... Kids just bring excitement, right? They they bring an energy, and this is not a, a downer on you guys. You all bring some energy, some excitement, but kids just amplify that a little more. And so, like, I feel like all their excitement just kind of goes with them, and it goes to kids' church, but that's okay. That's They're going to have their worship time, and that's that's great. I'm I'm proud for them and encouraged by that. But, man, I hate watching all of them leave. <laughs> and there's a bunch of them today, too, so uh, I hope Hannah's prepared. <laughs> there's so Hey, we're in the second part of our series called Ready, and the reason we're doing this series is because if you're a Christian, you've been in a situation at some point or another where, where someone has asked you a question about your faith, or, or they've made a comment, and it's just kind of a jab. It, it's not really they're looking for a conversation. They're just saying something, and it just kind of throws you off balance, and, and you're kind of thinking the whole time, you know, well, if you'd read a book. Or if, if you'd listen to this series, or if you'd listen to a podcast, or, or something like that, I could, I could answer your question. You know, we could resolve this tension. If, if I had more than 30 seconds, to, I could do this, but I don't have more than 30 seconds. And so the whole idea of this series is, instead of giving you some big theological, complicated explanations, or trying to get you to memorize a, a bunch of stuff... I thought we would just try and, and give some one-liners, uh, some, some one-liners that would help us answer people's questions. Because for most of us, for most of us, you know what you believe, right? You, you know what you believe, and if given enough time, if given enough time, you could probably answer some of your friends' questions. But most of the time, there's just not enough time. And so this series is about what to say when, when there's little time and, and really even less interest. Now, now, last week we started this off by looking at a passage of Scripture uh, from the Apostle Peter. And Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. He was one of his closest followers. And he wrote a couple of letters to Christians after Jesus had, had been crucified and after he had raised from the dead and after he had ascended to heaven. And, and one of those letters he makes a statement that kind of gives us the framework for, for this conversation, for this discussion that we're having. And here's what he said. It's in 1 Peter chapter 3. He said this. He said, Always be prepared. Or we might say, be ready, always be ready, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And the reason I love this verse that that Peter uses here, why I love this statement is, is almost for as much as what he's not saying. Because Peter's not saying always be prepared to give an answer for every question that everybody asks you. He doesn't say always be prepared to to be able to explain any verse that somebody points out to you in the Bible and says, well, what about this one? He doesn't say that. He he doesn't even say, well, well, be prepared to to defend why there's so many Christians who do weird things. He doesn't say any of that. Peter says, here's what you're responsible for. The one thing that you're responsible for is you must be ready to give an answer. You must be ready to give a defense for the reason, the explanation, for, for the hope that you have. In other words, this. You need to be ready to answer the question, why have you personally decided to follow Jesus? Why have you decided to follow Jesus? That's it. That's all that you need to be ready to answer. That's the only thing that you need to have the answer for is why have you decided to follow Jesus? And and it can be a simple, maybe one-liner explanation as to why you have chosen to be a Christian. Because look, there are a lot of questions that, that you can't answer. There are a lot of questions that may not even have answers. But whenever you're challenged or whenever the subject of religion or Christianity comes up, you should be ready to give an explanation, an answer or a defense for why you have chosen to follow Jesus. And so last week we, we asked the question, well, well, how would Peter, if he's telling us to, give a, to be ready to give an answer for, this quest, for our hope, how would he answer that question? And we said his answer would be easy. Peter would say, if you want to know why I'm a Jesus follower, it's this right here. It's the resurrection. The resurrection. Because I peered into an empty tomb after I saw a guy crucified. I saw him die and I saw, him, I saw them put him in a tomb. He was dead. He was buried. And then I had breakfast with him on the beach a few days later. That's why I follow Jesus. Because when you see a guy die and then you eat breakfast with him a couple of days later, it changes everything. In fact, in the first century, everybody anchored their hope to this. Everybody anchored their hope to this. They did not anchor their hope to a personal experience or to, to answer prayers or to the fact that God had come through for them, even though those would be wonderful stories, right? That, that's not what they anchored their hope to. Everybody anchored their hope and their faith to an event in history, and it was the resurrection of Jesus. And so, so last week I said to you, as you think about being ready, as you think about being prepared, I recommend that whatever language you use, whatever terminology you want to use, however you work it into your personality, we got to be ready to anchor our hope, to anchor our reasoning into the, to the resurrection of Jesus. And so I left you with a statement that went like this. It said, we said, I believe Jesus died for my sin and he rose from the dead. If somebody asks you, why have you chosen to follow Jesus? Why do you have the hope that you have? This is it. This is this is it. I believe that Jesus died for my sin and he rose from the dead. In fact, I had you say it with me last week. And so let's let's just do that again as a little refresher. Let's say it together. All right. You ready? I believe Jesus died for my sin and he rose from the dead. That's my hope that's my hope that's your hope that that's my reason and so today I I, want to expand on this statement I want to add a second part to that statement and and here it is and I'm just going to warn you right up right off the bat some of you when you hear this statement you're going to (gasps) go be patient all right it will make sense by the time we're done I, I, I hope it makes sense all right here's the statement I believe that Jesus died for my sin or died for my sin and he rose from the dead but I don't believe it just because the Bible says so. It's better than that, right? See, there it is. You say, oh, he doesn't believe the Bible. That's not what I said. I don't believe it just because the Bible says so. It's better than that. And so Today, I want to talk about the, the better than that part. And hopefully, maybe that, that intrigues you a little bit. And, and today, I want to specifically talk about the Bible, and specifically, I want to talk about how to talk about the Bible when the Bible is part of the conversation, when it's the subject. And so I'm going to address a couple of concerns, and and I'm going to invite you to think really hard to to, you're going to have to pay attention here you might even get confused and if you get confused it's not your fault it's mine but but just track with me and at the end I'll circle back around and and I'll give you a couple of simple simple statements that will tie all of this together And, and it will all relate to as to why we take this book seriously now here's the problem is that many of us were raised in conservative churches. I, I, I know I was. Ev- evangelical churches, uh, conservative Christian churches that, that took the Bible seriously. But, but unfortunately, the problem was this. It was this infallible but seemingly indefensible foundation of our faith was the Bible. that people talked about it, uh, and, and nobody said this, but they, they talked about it, and the way the Bible was presented to us was that it was the foundation of our faith. And it was presented as an as an infallible book. No, no error. Everything in here is true. Okay, and I'm just gonna tell you right off the bat, I believe that. Okay, so I don't want anybody to hear something that I'm not saying. I believe this, that the Bible is infallible, that everything in here is true. But the problem when when people hear that is that in the real world, it's a bit, it's a bit like, I believe that this is the word of God. I believe it's infallible, but I don't know if I can defend it. Right? I don't know if somebody points something out to me that's, that's maybe a little awkward or, or maybe that doesn't make sense in the context of the 21st century. I don't know if I can defend it. I believe it. I'm just not sure I know what to say about it. And so here's some great news. is that You don't have to defend this entire book. You don't have to defend this entire book. I read a story a, a couple of weeks ago, and it's an all-too-familiar story, of a young lady who grew up in a church much like our church, um, where you know they had Sunday school and summer camp and mission trips, and, and they sang all the songs, and they did all the stuff that good conservative churches do and, and, and all the stuff that they teach people do. And, and, and she believed the Bible from cover to cover. I mean, from Genesis to maps, right? She believed all of it. And in this article... She talks about how she went to college, she went to the university, and, and people there began to directly and indirectly pick apart the infallibility of the Bible. Some of the things that she'd always believed, and consequently she, she lost her faith. And in this article she, she wrote one statement that, that makes me think that, it, that actually it underscores the importance of, of this conversation that we're having today. She's talking about Christian, basically college students who who grew up in Christian churches who went away to college and they had their faith just kind of ripped apart and undermined by academia. And here's what she says. She says, we evangelicals with our infallible view of scripture ripped from our hands were left gasping for air. If you crumble and toss out a literal reading of the Bible, then what does it mean to talk about Jesus literally dying for your sins? And so here's what happened, and this is what happens to, to many people, and we, we see this all the time. She went to college with, hey, this is an infallible book. This is the story of my faith. And then somebody came along and said, well, hey, I can, I can show you something that, that can't possibly be true. I can show you something that's not infallible, right? And, and right or wrong, that's, that's just what they think, right? And so, so they start showing things. They start picking apart things, and it's just like a house of cards, you know, they, they pulled out Genesis and John came tumbling down. They, they pulled out some historical aspects of, of the Old or the New Testament and the whole Bible collapsed. And like many people, she walked away from Christianity because somebody told her something about the Bible. And here's the great, great, great news. And this is why I want to talk about this today. Because the foundation of our faith as Christians is not the Bible. And that's another statement that I know when I make that. You all are, some people are like, oh, I can't believe he said that. But I'm just telling you, the foundation of our faith as Christians is not the Bible. The foundation of our faith as Christians is not a book. The reason we believe what we believe is not because of what's contained between the leather of the Old and the New Testament. People can poke holes in the infallibility of, of the Bible all day long, and it does nothing to diminish the, the truth and the significance of what we believe as Christians. And you think, how in the world is that even possible? And, and hang on just a minute, because that's what we're going to talk about. And so here's what I want to do real quickly. I, I want to talk about the Old Testament, and then I'm going to talk about the New Testament. And, and then, again, I'll, I'll give a couple simple statements, and we'll tie it all together at the end. But here's something that, that you may ha- have never known. You may have never been taught this. You may, Or maybe you have, not maybe you just never thought about it in these terms. But, but here's the thing. Christians, we take the Old Testament seriously. Why? Because Jesus did. Christians, we take the Old Testament seriously because Jesus did. That, that's why we take the Old Testament seriously. The reason we believe the Old Testament isn't because it's in the Bible. The reason we take the Old Testament seriously is because Jesus took it seriously. And, and in other words, let me say this. Um, Let's say it this way. You did not become a Christian unless you're Jewish. And even if you're Jewish, you probably still didn't uh, become a Jew this way. Uh, somebody didn't come to you one day as a child and, and hand you... This book, or hand you a part of this book, and and hand you Genesis, and say, hey, read this. And you read Genesis, and you go, oh, that's incredible. I think that's true. What happened next? And then they handed you another piece, and it was Exodus, and you read that, and you're like, oh, that's incredible. What happened next? And then you read Leviticus, and you go, oh, well, that was boring. Um, is there anything else? And and you read Numbers and Deuteronomy, and nothing really happened there. And then you got to Joshua, and it was like, oh, this is incredible. What happens next? And, and then they handed you Judges. In other words. People didn't, so whoever brought you to faith didn't hand you pieces of the scripture, right? That's not how you came to, to faith. You didn't get all the way to the end of the Old Testament and go, oh, wow, I'm a Jew. No, like, that's not what happened, right? And then you said, hey, is there any more of this? And they said, well, there's 400 years of silence, and, and then you read Matthew. And you're like, oh, wow, what happens next? Like, that's, that's not how you became a Christian, right? Here, here's what happened for most of us, is that somebody sat you down as a kid or maybe a college student or a young adult or maybe even recently and they said they said you need to know about Jesus and they told you about Jesus and you put your faith in Jesus and then they handed you a book that looked like this one and they said here's here's everything that you need to know about Jesus here's everything that he teaches here's everything about his background and you read it, and you believed it. And so the point is this, is the reason that we take the Old Testament seriously is because Jesus took the Old Testament seriously. Not because it's just contained in a book. The the reason we take it seriously is because when Jesus was walking around on planet Earth, He made a lot of statements, He made a lot of comments about the Old Testament. And the reason we take it seriously is because He believed it was true. He talked about some of the historical characters in, in, in the Old Testament. And so we believe those things are true because Jesus believed they were true. And, and, and here's a statement that he makes It tells us in particularly how seriously he took the Old Testament. The gospel writer Matthew, he recorded Jesus saying this, is, it's in Matthew chapter 5, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, which was the majority of the Old Testament, right? He says, I've not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. In other words, he's saying, look, I haven't come to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish the teachings of the Hebrew Bible. I've not come to do away with any of the valuable traditions of the the Jews that, that I also value myself. I've come to fulfill them. I've come to fulfill the Hebrew Bible. Jesus believed that the Old Testament was inspired. And so as a Christian, the reason I take the Old Testament seriously, the reason you take it seriously, even though you may have never even thought about it in these terms, is because Jesus took it seriously. The fact that he mentions many of the Old Testament characters or narratives is really powerful. The reason that I believe there was a real Adam and Eve is because Jesus believed there was a real Adam and Eve. The reason I believe that Jonah and the whale is not just some made up fairy tale that that actually happened, that there was a a fish that actually swallowed a human being and he lived inside of that human being, uh, inside of that whale for three days. The reason I believe that is true is because Jesus believed that it was true. And so you're smart people. So here's kind of a summary statement, and then we'll move on. It goes like this. Yeah, you know, there are, there's some crazy things in the Old Testament. There really are some, some, some crazy things. But since Jesus took the Old Testament seriously, I do too. That, that's the statement. That, that's, that's it. Since Jesus took the Old Testament seriously, I do too. Because in being ready and being prepared, our goal is to get people to Jesus as quickly as possible. Because you are only responsible for being ready to explain the hope that is in you as it relates to your decision to follow Jesus. All right, so everybody with me right now. The reason we take the Old Testament seriously is because Jesus takes it seriously, right? All right, so you're with me. So here's where we get to kind of the really complicated part. Because it's at this point in the conversation that that if, if you're talking to somebody kind of smart and they're paying attention, they'll go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on, hold on. You're saying that. that you believe the Old Testament is true because Jesus believed it's true. Really? Yeah, that's correct. And then they would say, but, but isn't the Bible the source of all the things that we know about Jesus? Isn't the Bible the source of what, what we know about Jesus, what he said? And, and we would say, yes, that is true. And so they would say, so you're just using the Bible to prove the Bible, right? Like, come on, Adam, you're, you're smarter than that. That's just circular reasoning. You've got to be smarter than that. And, and so we would say to that, absolutely not. We are not using the Bible to prove the Bible is true. And here's, here's why we can say that. You may or may not know this, that, that the, word, the, the word Bible actually comes from a Latin term, which comes from a Greek term that means books. And here's why this is important, that, that this this Bible is a collection of a bunch of ancient manuscripts. And this is very important that, that we understand this, that these ancient texts existed before they were bound in a book that we call the Bible. We, we talked about this actually back in January. Many, many generations ago, so somebody got together with, with, with these ancient manuscripts and they bound them all together in what we would call the Old and the New Testament. They, w- you know, they took the Hebrew Bible and, and they put it together and, and they called it the Old Testament. And then as Jesus went around and He taught and He preached, people began to write down what He was saying and they got all of those manuscripts, all of those documents together and, and they put them together and, and they called it the New Testament. We would call you know, these ancient manuscripts the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then after Jesus departed this earth, the, the generation of people that knew him and that were eyewitnesses and the people that knew the eyewitnesses, they began to write as well. And that's where we get me, uh, much of the rest of the New Testament. But what, what you need to know is this, is that all of these documents existed before they were bound together in a book that we call the Bible. They were all together. They, they existed before that. And Now, the most important documents for, for our conversation this morning would be the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And here's a, here's a very important distinction, all right? You ready for this? Is that Christians don't believe the Gospels, or they don't believe the Gospels are reliable because they're in the Bible. All right? Again, I know I'm making all kinds of statements today that y'all are going, oh. Christians don't believe the Gospels are, are, are reliable just because they're in the Bible. Christians don't believe Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John should be taken seriously just because they're in the Bible. Christians believe the Gospels uh, were included in the Bible because they were reliable. Alright, that's the big difference. They were included because they were reliable. Christians take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John seriously, not just because it's in the Bible, but because they were considered such reliable witnesses to the life and, and, and testimony of, of who Jesus was, that, that when they wrote, people said they knew Him. They were with Him. They, they were eyewitnesses to, to, to Him, so we can believe what, they, what they're saying about Him. Let me illustrate it this way, just, just for a minute. This is a collection, right? We've established this is a collection of, of, of ancient manuscripts. Think back to when you were in college and when you were in, you know, taking a college English class, and and you had to buy a a book that was like the collection of the greatest short stories, right? You buy this big, thick book, and it cost you $200, and you thought, why in the world am I buying such a big book to only read four short stories out of this, right? And, And if you complained about it, your teacher probably said, but these are the greatest short stories in the world, right? This is a collection of the greatest short stories in the world. Now, nobody would say that those are the greatest short stories in the world because they were in that book, right? That doesn't make any sense, does it? They were already great before they were in the book. The reason they are in the book is because they are great. No one would say that. So, in the same way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the the testimony of the life and the words of Jesus, they were included in these ancient manuscripts because they were considered by people who were close to the action, by people who studied and compared. They, They considered these to be the authentic words of Jesus. And that group knew that for generations, for generations there would be people who would want to know what Jesus said and what Jesus did. So fortunately for us, there were four Gospels that were collected and they became a part of this document way before it was all put together and bound by leather and had your name written in gold on the front of it. it was, they existed way before all of that, right? So the Gospels existed before the Bible. So a so summary statement would, would be this, this. The Gospels are considered reliable because of who wrote them and when they were written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are considered reliable not because they're in the Bible, but because of who wrote them and when they were written. All right, now let's keep going, and then I'll circle back around and we'll sum all this up. Now, I want to introduce you, I'm going to shift gears for just a moment, because I want to introduce you to the most important date for Christians other than anything that happens with, within the Bible, or, you know, or specifically within the New Testament history. Here's a date that, that we don't really talk about much in Western history. We, we just don't study it a whole lot, but, but it's a If you could just log one date away as as a Christian, this would be the date I would ask you to consider. It's 70 A.D. 70 A.D. In fact, I believe very specifically it to be August of 70 A.D. Because something very important happened in 70 A.D. in August. 70 A.D. was in the middle of what was called the First Jewish War. The first Jewish war was this this major rebellion of of the Jews against the Roman Empire. And it started off as just these regional skirmishes, and there were groups that gathered together to basically just to to terrorize Roman soldiers and to terrorize Roman citizens. And within the context of, of Judea and Palestine, what we would consider the Holy Land. And Rome finally got tired of it. They, they, they got tired uh, of this, and so they sent Vespasian in. Vespasian was a Roman general, and they sent him in to quell this riot, to, to calm everything down, to, to basically um, conquer all of these rebels. And so he began to conquer these villages and, and all of these towns, and all of these different groups, as they were retreating, they finally went to Jerusalem. And they got inside the city of Jerusalem, and they just they, they stormed the, the Roman garrison there in Jerusalem. They, they killed Roman soldiers. They, they stole their weapons. They sent a group to Masada, and, and they brought weapons back from Masada that, that Herod had stored there for many years. They, they brought them back to Jerusalem. They shut the gates, and they held themselves up sort of as hostages within the city of Jerusalem. So Vespasian comes in, and he demands that they surrender the city of Jerusalem over to the Romans, uh, Romans and, and and these people that are inside, they're like, nope, 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 we're good here. We've got plenty of food. We, we've got protection. You're out there. We're in here. If you want us, you're going to have to come and get us. And so for a couple of years, there's a battle that takes place out there. And, and, and the Romans, they're, they're, they're just not really having any luck. Um, the Jewish rebels, they would sneak out at night, and they, they would take the fight to the Roman soldiers. You know, Rome was very proud of their army, and, but they, they fought very you know in formations. And and these rebels, they didn't do that. And so they would just come out and they would attack at night and and they would kill hundreds of them in in single battles. And so for a couple of years, actually for about two and a half years, uh, they're they're out there and they're just fighting. Well, finally, Vespasian, um, he goes back to Rome to become the Roman emperor. And his son Titus is left with the charge of take this city and get rid of all of these Jewish rebels. Wipe them out. Whatever you got to do, do it. And so for, for another couple of years, Titus and his army, they're out there and they, they dig a ditch all around the city. It's like 42 miles of ditch and it's a, a, and a palisade and it's got about 30 or 40 forts there all the way around the city. And they did this to, to try and starve the people out. If they can't get stuff in, then, then they'll eventually run out of food and, and we'll be able to attack them. And so they, they thought they would be able to starve them out. Well, they, they couldn't starve them out. Or they ran out of patience to starve them out one and so they start trying to to break through the walls and there's three different walls there's an outer wall that's the first wall and they're not having much luck getting through the walls and like they, they tried to tunnel under the walls and they, they just couldn't do it and so at one point Titus he's so angry and his soldiers are so angry I mean they've been out there for for a couple of years now they've gone through the hot summers and the cold winters they are tired and they are they are miserable and they are angry And so one day they they began to just crucify any of the Jews that were near the city. Any Jew that they could find in the area, anybody that maybe slipped out at night, uh, even people who were trying to betray those inside the city, they were crucified. Josephus, the historian, he says, in one day they crucified over 500 people outside the walls of the city to scare those who were inside the city of Jerusalem. They did it so that they would scare them into surrendering. Well, finally... There's about three walls, you know, I said, they, and they break through the outer wall, the first wall. They, they built this huge battering ram, and, and they get through the second wall. And finally, in 70 A.D., Titus and his soldiers, they get through the third wall, and they break into the city. And when they get into the city, they are mad. I mean, think about this. How mad would you be? You, you've been in this for two years fighting And now you finally get in and they are mad. And so they storm the city. And as they storm the city, they accidentally catch the temple on fire. They didn't intend to destroy the the, the Jewish temple there, but but they catch it on fire. The very same temple where Jesus had been, the very same temple where Jesus had prophesied, and all the things that you read about in the New Testament, it's, it's that temple. And the temple begins to burn. And anything that's in the temple that can burn, does burn. And, and finally, Titus gets in there, and they completely destroy the city. Here's what Josephus, the historian, tells us. He was there. He says this. He says, The slaughter within was even more dreadful than the spectacle from without. Men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who entreated, uh, who entreated mercy were hewn down in indiscriminate carnage. The legionnaires had to clamor over heaps of dead to carry on the work of extermination. That's what they were after. So this is, this is a big deal in, in, in history. About 300,000 people died in, in this battle, they, inside and around the city of Jerusalem. And most importantly, the temple was destroyed, which meant this. And here's the significance of the temple being destroyed. It meant that ancient Judaism ceased to exist. Ancient Judaism ended on this day in August of 70 AD because there was no more temple and if there was no more temple that meant no more temple sacrifices. That meant no more atonement for sin. So ancient Judaism ends in 70 AD. This was a big deal. I'm I'm telling you we can't understate how big of a deal this was because the temple, it was the pinnacle. It was the epicenter of of the Jewish experience. It's essentially where they believed that Yahweh lived and when Rome took the city and Rome destroyed the temple Titus went in and he just completely tore apart and he dragged off the The stones of the temple, he he had those taken off so that it would never be rebuilt. The message was this, was you're not going to rebuild this because we believe the temple is is at the heart of the rebellion against Rome. So so we're not going to ever allow this to be built again. And today, if you go to Jerusalem, you can visit the Temple Mount and you can visit the Temple Plaza, but there is no temple. Even to this day, there is no temple. And there hasn't been a temple ever since this, since Titus destroyed it in 70 A.D., and so Titus, he goes back to Rome, and his father dies, and he becomes emperor. And then he gets sick, and he dies. And Domitian, his brother, becomes the emperor of Rome. And to honor his brother, he builds an arch to, com- to commemorate the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and, and the Jewish temple. This was such a big deal that they decided, that hey, how can we honor Titus? Let's honor the, the most significant thing that he did as a Roman general and as an emperor. And, and the thing that they came up with that was the most significant was that he destroyed the temple of Jerusalem, That was the most significant thing. And so if you, you can go there and you can walk under this arch and if you look up on the sides of it, what you'll see are, are depictions uh, of people carrying off artifacts of the temple. This was such a big deal, the, the destruction of the temple and, and the Jewish and Jerusalem. And so, as you, as you can imagine, it would have also been a big deal to the Jews, right? But you don't study this in history. We don't talk about this in, in Western history. But it was a really big, bloody and gory deal. Now, why in the world would I tell you that long, sad, and horrible story? Well, this is important because there is no mention of the war against the Jews or the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, the Jewish temple, anywhere in the New Testament. There is no mention of that. There is no reference to the war and the destruction of the temple anywhere within the New Testament. But, I mean, this was a big deal. This was, this was the, you know, the whole New Testament happened in this area. When, when you read the Gospels, it's all about the temple and going back to Jerusalem and, and back to Galilee. The whole thing happened around there. The Apostle Paul, he's in and, out, in and out of Jerusalem all the time. It's where he writes his epistles, but there's no mention of this, of this war. There's no mention. How could you not reference that, right? How, how could you possibly just not reference this? Everything that you grew up with, knowing it and, and believing, it's gone. And so the question is, why is there no reference to this seven-year war? Or why is there no reference to that in the New Testament? And the only logical answer is this. It hadn't happened yet. It hadn't happened yet. Here's why, and here's why that's important for us. Because Jesus was crucified around 33 AD, okay? The, the destruction of the temple, it happened, as we know from history, in 70 AD. So that's about 37 years, about 37 years between the crucifixion of Jesus... And the destruction of the temple. And there's no reference. There's not even an insinuation that this has happened yet in any of the gospel writers. And so here's why that's important for us. Because that means that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we know for sure the epistles of Paul because they're dated about 20 years after the crucifixion. But the teachings of Jesus that we hold dear in this book. It means that they were all written before the destruction of the temple. Which means that they were written while there were many, many, many eyewitnesses who were there, who walked with Jesus, who heard Jesus, who saw the miracles, they were written while these people were still living. While they, where they could say, yes, that happened, or no, that didn't happen. You know, people will tell you that as time went by, the, this Jesus legend, it just grew and it grew and it grew, and people just kept adding things. But we, we say, no, 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 that's not true, because everything that was written was written clearly before 70 A.D. Let me tell you more, one more reason why I believe this to be the case. Because if you were Matthew or Mark or Luke or John and you, or you were just going to write the story of Jesus or maybe you were an imposter and you were just going to write a fake, a fake gospel and, and maybe you lived many years after the fact. You know, like people tell us that some of the gospels were written hundred, maybe in even some cases 120 years later. Here's what you would have done. You would have leveraged the destruction of the, of the temple to make a Christian point. I mean, I mean, think about this. Think about how powerful this was. This was, you know, you could have said, just as Jesus said, I will destroy this temple and raise it up again, and lo and behold, the temple's destroyed. Or or, or you could say, hey, just as Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin, God proved that he was the final sacrifice for sin by allowing the Romans to destroy the the, the Jewish temple. There, there was no way that, that a Christian writer would not have leveraged the destruction of the temple to, to make a point for it. You just wouldn't miss that opportunity. It would be like us not saying, hey, we're going to take advantage of Ford moving into our community. I mean, it would be that kind of significance, right? But because there's no mention of it, because there's no mention anywhere in the New Testament of the destruction of the temple, it means that everything was written before 70 A.D., within, within 40 years of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Here's what historians will tell us. That if you ask the question, how long does it take a myth or, or a legend to surface? How long does it take truth to become a myth? Or, or how long does it take something that, that actually happened in, and you know, they can add things to it you know, where it becomes really something that didn't happen but it's, it's rooted in, in some shred of truth? How long does it take for those kind of things to become accepted? The, the earliest that they will tell you is 80 to 90 years. 80 to 90 years. Why does it take so long? Because you have to wait till all the eyewitnesses are dead you got to wait till all the eyewitnesses are dead, uh, because a myth can't develop until they're all gone, right? Dr. Norman Gosler said this uh, many years ago. He said, The day will come when people will begin to float theories about the Jewish Holocaust. They will begin to float this idea that the Holocaust never happened. Now, he said this years ago. And your reaction to that is like mine. It's like, what? I mean, how-, how can you even think that? Because, I mean, you can go and visit the concentration camps. Like, I mean, there's pictures. There's documented history. You can see all of it. Like, ha- Why would anybody ever think that? And he said he said this, he said, As the last Holocaust survivors die, a theory will surface somewhere in the world that the Holocaust never happened, but it won't surface until the final Holocaust survivors are dead. And now what do you hear occasionally? That the Jews manufactured the Holocaust. And and sure enough, as the final Holocaust survivors are dying, people are beginning to float this crazy idea that it never happened. Now why did they wait so long? Why, why didn't they say this 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago? Wow, because this is how history works. You, you can't float a myth. You can't support a myth. You can't redact history. You can't change history until all of the eyewitnesses are dead. The fact that the gospels were written while eyewitnesses were still alive and you know 37 to, to 40 years between the resurrection and the destruction of the temple means that you can believe what you hear about Jesus what you know about Jesus because there were people who were there who could confirm or deny that these things happened or that he said these things because they were still living and that's huge for us. You say well 37 to 40 years that's that's a long time. 37 years is only a long time if you're 37. I'm 37. All right. See, we take the gospel seriously. We take the gospel seriously not just because they're in the Bible. We, we take them seriously because of who wrote them and when they were written. And because of who wrote them and when they were written, they were included in the New Testament. Let me make it super simple as we wrap this up. Here's how to be ready. You see, I believe the Old Testament is true. And I take the Old Testament seriously because Jesus took it seriously. And I take Jesus seriously because of what Matthew said about him and what, and what Mark said about him and Luke said about him and what John said about him and what Peter and James and Paul, what they all said about him. And fortunately for us, somebody took all the things that they wrote about him and they collected it and they eventually put it together in, in, in a collection. that was called the New Testament. And somebody eventually came along and they translated it into English so that we could read it. So let me say this again. I take the Old Testament seriously, not because I can explain it all, Not even because it all makes sense. I take take it seriously because Jesus did. And I take Jesus seriously because of who wrote about him and when they wrote it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James. I believe Jesus died for my sins and he rose from the dead. But I don't believe it just because the Bible says so. It's better than that. I believe it because Matthew said so and Mark said so. And Luke said so, and John said so, and Peter, and James, and Paul, because they said so. That's my hope. That's why, that's why I have hope in Jesus. That's why I've chosen to follow Jesus. I love the Scriptures. I love the Scriptures, and I love the Bible. And a single event is the foundation of my Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus. That's why I have hope, and it's the exact same reason that you have hope. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you, and we are so thankful for men and women who would give their life to preserve these ancient manuscripts. But Father, we thank you that even, even though we believe in, in certain things about the Bible that it's infallible and, and that it's inerrant, even if, it, if people are able to poke holes in that, it doesn't change anything, not one bit, about the truth that we know to be tr- uh, about Jesus to be true. Father, thank you for men like Peter and Matthew and Mark and Luke and John who who would document the life of Jesus and they, would, and they would preserve it so that we would be able to read it thousands of years later. Father, thank You that there were men who were so convinced because of what they had seen that they peered into an empty tomb and then they had breakfast with it, with, with that same man who had been buried. And they were so convinced that He was the Messiah, that He was the Savior of the world, that they preserved these documents for us so that we might have that same confidence. And so, Father, my prayer is simply this today, that that if there is somebody here that doesn't have that confidence that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Savior of the world, that today, because of of what they've heard about the Bible, that they would believe the Bible is true, and that they would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that that He lived and He died for my sins, and He rose from the dead, Father, that's my hope. That's my, why, why I have such great confidence in Jesus. Because he rose from the dead. Father, we love you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.